This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome to Energy Sense, a new IHS market podcast that looks at the intersection of energy and financial markets and works to make sense of it all with IHS market experts for our listeners. I'm Hill Vaden, and I'm co-hosting this week with my friend and colleague, Rachel Beaver, who uh, joins us out of London. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Hill. Delighted to join you. And it's a very interesting topic that we have to discuss, discuss today uh, with two of our esteemed guests, Roger Dewan, IHS Market Vice President of Financial Services, and Carlos Pasqual, IHS Market Senior Vice President of Global Energy. Welcome to you both, gentlemen. It's a pleasure Thank to be you. with you. Thank you. Welcome, guys. So, so as you as you know, we've discussed the, uh, the the topic a little bit before we get here, but but the 1970s are back. Um, you know, I think there's maybe you know Peter Tosh's album Equal Rights is as topical as it ever was. Uh, and just yesterday is another example. An eight-year-old daughter prompted a discussion with me on my favorite songs on David Bowie's uh, album Diamond Dogs. Um, but increasingly, maybe more relevant to this podcast. Media and forecasters are making passage prologue comparisons between the 70s and the coming 2020s, uh, flagging parallels that include Asia-born flu-like pandemics, street protests in Western democracies, and law and order presidential Republicans. Uh, there are, of course, some obvious reasons why this time is different, and the 2020s aren't going to be a complete repeat of the 1970s. Uh, floppy disks, I don't think anybody expects to make a comeback. The Stones won't be making any new records as good as Exile on Main Street was. And Rachel, I trust you're not going to be breaking out your space hopper again in the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that would be quite a sight to behold. Uh, but sticking with the past is prologue theme, it's an interesting theme and applying it particularly to energy markets. Um, observations from the 1970s could apply to our expectations for the 20s, perhaps. For example, in the 70s, there were two oil shocks that limited global supply and spike prices. In 1973, associated with the Yom Kippur War, uh, again in 1979, tied to the Iraq Revolution. Um, and queuing for gasoline and no gas signs are memorable for Americans as images of the 1970s. Um, interestingly, growing U.S. production, uh, I think, was associated in both eras. So you had growing oil production from Prudhoe Bay in the 70s and lately from the Permian Basin. Um, so, Roger, I'm interested. Do you think that oversupply we've seen in the last few years will continue to be a major focus for the oil markets in the decade ahead? Or do you think we'll see um, oil prices uh, back from uh, production restraint in OPEC and elsewhere? Yeah, so I think this uh, 70s prologue to the 20s in oil doesn't really work, correct? To supply shocks, here we have uh, the biggest demand shock ever. So uh, in many ways, we're, uh, we're at a time of uh, uh, extreme abundance. And as we speak uh, right now, we have about 15 million barrels per day of spare capacity, which is exactly contrary to what we had in the 70s, no spare capacity and prices rising. So I think we're in different moments. The question uh, that you're asking here is, is this moment in a way creates so much pain that we have not enough investment in the industry to meet demand two, three years, four years down the road in a post-COVID 
kind of uh, 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 recovery, a golden age, not 75 as you want, but more like the 60s there, uh, early 60s and the 50s, where everybody goes out and starts spending money and you have a, a big boom, an inflationary boom, if you want. Um, I don't see that. And I think the industry right now and the abundance of resources that we have mean that oil price in the medium to, to, to long term are capped, actually, uh, because at $60, $70, we can deliver a lot of resources. So oil is not likely to be a source of inflation and energy in general, actually, I think might be a source of deflation. Carlos, what do you think about that? Well, I would say that the story of the of the 2020s is going to be the story of demand, um, as opposed to what it was in the 1970s, which was uh, shortages of supply. And I think, Roger, the that our views probably coincide with one another, but the critical issues that we're going to see, what we see right now with the pandemic, is that you've had a massive contraction of demand because of the inability to drive, to move, to, for the economy to function, to people be engaged economically. And as a result of that, it's had a huge contraction on GDP, it's had a huge uh, impact on oil demand. And the recovery is going to depend on how we get out of that pandemic and how demand in the world resuscitates itself again. But that's going to translate to, to transition to other issues. Um, when is peak demand going to occur? Is energy transition going to be accelerated as a result of this process? Are people going to begin to see that that there is an inevitability of change and start to embrace it. How is ESG going to play into these questions? And so I think that the story that we're seeing evolve right now is a story of what is the demand for energy going to be in the future? What, what is the mix of that energy going to be? And at one point, do we start to embrace change? Do we recognize that this change is inevitable and you embrace it? and then potentially accelerate that transition process even, even further. That's really yeah. interesting to hear you say that, Carlos, because I, I wonder whether, um, I mean, obviously environmentalism is, is an issue um, that was uh, around in both decades, in both eras. Um, in the 70s, the US observed Earth Day for the first time in April 1970. Uh, Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency later that year. And uh, as you've highlighted, um, ESG concerns continue to be high on the agenda in the 2020s and continue to be influencing policy. Uh, but I think importantly, do you think investors and in traditional energy companies share the same environmental priorities? Well, I, the first thing I would do is question the word in traditional energy company, because that's one of the things that's fundamentally changing. That, I mean, if you look at the international oil companies, so Repsol, BP, Shell, Total have all made commitments to net zero carbon emissions by the year 2050. That's going to mean that they're not going to look traditional for uh, um, after some period of time. Oil, oil and gas are going to be part of their future for some period of time, but new things are going to come into it. And then Equinor and E&I have also made extensive commitments. The U.S. oil and gas companies are, uh, are, are not in exactly the same space. Um, so I, I think that's one piece. The second piece of it when you come back to the point of investors in here, I want Roger to jump in, that what struck me is that investors in the end are thinking about the return that they get, but they're also thinking about volatility. 
And one of the issues that we've seen in the past decade, and we see a major concern right now, is the concern about price volatility. They want dependability. And so I think there's also going to be pressure out of investors, out of concerns that they've traditionally had, that this price volatility is not good for what they're trying to do with their investment funds. Yeah. And so I, I think we're going to see changes from both sides, that companies are going to change, investment patterns are going to change. And the interesting thing question is a question that I, that we come back to is this point that I've been thinking about a lot is when does it get to the point where you just start hugging this right because this change seems so inevitable that you yeah. feel like you have to embrace it and, and go with it. Mm-hmm. Well, we are at the moment of embrace, correct? I mean, uh, uh, major oil companies talking about net net zero. This is the embrace, and I think the embrace is coming uh, not only out of. Uh, uh, you know, this is what their shareholders are asking, etc. I mean, this is where the future is. Technology is shifting. We're they're in the energy business at the end of the day. They're not in the oil business. Uh, they're they need to think that they're here to deliver energy, whatever form it is. The question is, can they transform their portfolios to go there? Uh, in terms of returns, as you said, uh, uh, Carlos, it's not clear over the last five years, six years, even with the. Uh, and particularly with the shale revolution, that uh, the returns uh, in the oil business has been better than in any other aspect of the energy uh, chain, uh, even with lower returns like uh, certain renewables, etc. But even that now, I think, would be debatable uh, with what we just saw. So I think from delivering values to their shareholders, uh, they're going to need to find new business model. And oil is not a slam dunk that they have to make an arbitrage like between let's make money with oil and uh, or, or or be green. That bargain doesn't exist anymore. Shale has transformed that. The peak in demand, uh, all of these issues, technology in in bringing oil to the surface at you know thirty five forty dollar in the United States, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, changed that uh, that debate. But at the same time, I think you can't have uh, these companies uh, too unmoored from their societies. Correct. I mean, their shareholders are pensioners at the end of the day, mm-hmm. and uh, pensioner uh, also has values. And I think what we're seeing with the rise of the ESG investing, uh, how uh, how these companies present themselves, how they present their carbon footprint, how they appeal to new generation. I mean, you know, talking uh, to my kids about these companies, when you say oil, it's a dirty word, correct? Um, so that has to. Uh, to also evolve with society. So I think it's both an issue of values and value that they will have to transition, and it's happening. The important transition for me is really happening on the capital markets, correct? I mean, this is where the pressure is coming from. It's not coming from governments in the United States. It's coming from uh, the financial side of, of the business, putting pressure on all companies said, look, you don't fit the criteria that uh, uh, are for a company that we want to invest in, in terms of returns, but also in terms of your ESG footprint. So that changes and that transition, that capital transition is uh, is actually happening probably faster than the transition in the energy mix that already exists within these companies. And just one thing that I would add to that, just on the national oil companies, I mean, one of the fascinating things is that look at the Middle East, the intent has been to use oil to reduce dependence on oil, right? To create yep. the, the financial resources to facilitate mm-hmm. diversification. And one thing I would say is watch sovereign wealth funds. 
from the um, from the oil producing states. Watch how many of them are going to be inve investing in oil related activities. I bet you, even in those sovereign wealth funds, what you're going to see is a real change in, in their investment patterns. Well, we saw. I mean, I guess coming out of the back of uh, you know the March market collapse, um, you know that the Saudi uh, investment fund was pretty active and bought yeah. a mix of things from the, the Carnival Cruise Line to uh, I think E and I, a handful of the IOCs, right? So, so that. In a sense, kind of gave more optionality, but but increased its exposure to to oil in a way. Well, but very uh, in a very minor way. They bought for five billion dollar of uh, of oil assets. Uh, now they're probably worth eight billion, so it's time to probably to move on. But uh, that that was really day trading almost from the sovereign wealth fund, which borrowed from the state to be able to uh, to buy uh, cheap stocks for $20 billion. So I think it was a more short-term play, uh, more than what we're seeing in the market right now, than really a long-term strategy. Okay. Well, you both, um, you know, kind of mentioned that the, the values of societies and of individuals, whether putting pressure on investors, putting pressure on NOCs, or putting pressure on, um, you know, the IOCs. And Carlos, you and I talked about this a little bit, um, you know, offline uh, to, to today and yesterday. But you know, the 1970s was famously referred to by Time Wolf as the me decade, right? And if, if people are going to um, start prioritizing some of this environmental consciousness, that requires a degree of kind of uh, shared good or public good. Um, you know, it, what one could argue that we are increasingly, as a society, focused on me. If we look at Instagram, if we look at selfies and some of the uh, you know, more distance from social distancing, remote learning. Can we balance uh, some of these social good um, efforts with, with a focus on me? And, and will society's fascination with self help to shape energy markets in the 2020s? Well, the first thing is I have to chastise you on your focus on the 1970s <laughs> and the me decade. And as I told you before, Tom Wolf then achieved greater clarity when he wrote Bonfires of the Vanities, criticizing the 1980s as the ultimate era of decadence that put the 1970s into a, um, a greater perspective of selflessness, which I'm not self-conscious about that at all since I went to high school and university during that period. And so think of myself as a relatively selfless person. So uh, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just a minor pushback on those issues. But look, I. I, all I think one has to do is look, turn on the television, look at any newspaper in the United States, look at any news feed that you see today and what is happening. And there is an unprecedented, unprecedented historic movement that we're seeing from a grassroots level protesting the death of George Floyd, the um, issues related to racism, to rule of law, to police brutality, to, um, to inequalities in our society. And it's brought people together in ways that we just haven't seen in decades, where people, regardless of race, regardless of the kind of economic activity that they've been involved in, are coming out in the middle of a pandemic and are willing to say, this has become so significant, so important that we need to stand up and we need to say something about it. So whatever that sort of me focus may be of the 2020s, whatever the focus may be of the fascination of the selfie and being able to reflect on and portray and, and, 
and convey what's happening in one's personal life. There's also a sensation there that something's been wrong, that there has been a polarization of society, which is not right, which is not just, which is not the right thing for a better future. And so I think the fascinating thing that we're facing right now is that people are coming together and standing up and saying that there needs to be a change. And that change is certainly related to civil rights and race and, and social justice in the United States. But the big question is going to be, does it extend itself further? And if we look at the energy area, to what extent is it going to underpin the way that we look at issues such as sustainability and climate change and the importance of global participation in these movements? Yeah, again, here I have to say I'm in agreement with Carlos on this one. Uh, I think, uh, again, the 70s and 80s, where you have boomers coming in, this very selfish uh, uh, culture in a way, uh, this is a very different culture than what we have right now. And I think, uh, yes, there is the me, but there is also the we. And it's very strong, I think, in sense of uh, uh, common goods. I mean, the environmental uh, uh, conscience of the younger generation of the people in their teens, 20s, and 30s, I think, is much stronger than what we have in the 70s. I think the 70s, the environmental movement was almost a fringe movement. Uh, here, it's not a fringe movement, uh, uh, not only in the United States, but uh, in Europe. I mean, uh, green uh, uh, green parties are in coalition everywhere in the world. All, all, the, all the greens are part of every party. The only place where that debate is, is held behind is in the United States, but I think it's just a temporary issue, and the U.S. will rejoin that, uh, that debate uh, in its right place. Well, and Roger, you, you talked a few minutes ago about, um, you know, the, the, the investors putting pressure on these companies to, uh, you know, in a sense, become more green or, or show a little bit more environmental consciousness. Um, you know, the, I, I guess the true skeptics would, would say a lot of that is greenwashing, um, you know, as, you know, the clients may maintain more of a focus on profit. Um, do, do you see a, a way for, for um, or in the 2020s, do, do we see client or these companies and investors prioritizing some of the social good, um, perhaps at the expense of profit when it comes to energy? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, I don't know uh, at the expense of profit, but I think you can bring both things together if you're pricing the environmental impact. And this is what we're starting to see that through basically you're putting a penalty on uh, on uh, on dirtier energy i mean you start to see green bonds cheaper than normal bonds correct so you start to see that movement that doing good will will allow you to do good uh, so th there is that and that financial transition for me is really kind of the crux of the issue and how quickly we're going to decapitalize one industry and recapitalize another one uh to allow this transition over the next 10, 15 years is going to be interesting. If you think about the, look what happened now, the, the, the notion that, you know, you have to subsidize uh, a green technology or, or, or green energy to, uh, to get uh, uh, the type of returns. I don't think it's true anymore. And I think because of COVID-19 and what it's doing in terms of economic intervention by governments, uh, all, all over the world, it will change that debate. What is, uh, what can government initiate and uh, invest and where the private sector is going to be and how you bring these two things together. That debate is changing very quickly. 
Yeah, two things that I, I would just add to that. Um, one, it's interesting, in a survey that uh, um, IHS Market did last year of a range of investors, one of the things that we found on their attitudes toward climate change and ESG is that um, there are two principal concerns, social activism and regulation. Regulation because it creates a lack of predictability about the future and what profits may be, and social activism because that influences regulation and it influences the political environment. And the point that these investors were getting at is that companies need to take action on environmental issues and an ESG because demonstrating that social consciousness is a way to in fact address the concerns of social activists. It's a way to mitigate regulation. It's a way to create dependability. And so the, the sense was that almost maybe ESG might not necessarily win you an investor, but if you don't have an ESG strategy, if you don't have a story to tell about the environment, you're creating a level of risk and uncertainty that's unattractive to investors to begin with. So I, I think that's interesting to take as a starting point, and potentially I think it's something, a trend that we might see evolving further into the future. Second point Correct. And, oh, so go ahead. Let me, let, let me just throw this in here. Yeah. I mean, the other point which I think is important is that we're coming out of a pandemic and we have to rebuild. And there's, there, there's a debate that has already started on the extent to which you can rebuild in a way which is better, right? And what does better mean? The European Union has taken probably the most forward-looking stance, and they've, the European Commission essentially has said that they want to create the first net zero continent. Right? Can they do that? Well, what it's challenging the political world and the policy world to do is to ask the question, can you create policies that are consistent with economic growth that at the same time reinforce investment in green technologies, renewable technologies, lower carbon emission technologies that would, for example, in Europe, accelerate the transition from nitro ga natural gas to hydrogen, or the inclusion of hydrogen that would have a massive impact on the sustainability of heating in the European continent, right? It's those kinds of questions that are being put on the agenda. And I think it may be hard to answer where the United States may go on these issues until after the election. But I think it's probably safe to say that if Joe Biden is elected president, there is going to be a very serious debate there about what changes in policies are, are made internally within the United States. And I would expect that one of the first things that we would see on the first day of a Biden presidency is, is rejoining Paris Agreement. Yeah, I, I, I agree on these two points. Actually, I want to add a little bit. Um, on the second point, you're absolutely right. I think the, the, the policy could be, uh, a reversal could be pretty strong, and COVID-19 actually make for even a stronger uh, response, not only because if we're going to invest, let's invest in green, but it also have removed one of the most powerful arguments, which is, hey, we, we can't afford it. Right? We just decided to spend $2.3 trillion on for a quarter correct to to uh, uh to to inject in the economy we in the united states we just gave 50 billion dollar to the um, airline industry of which half of it is grant no question asked do what you want with the money which is incredible i mean this is like four times what we did for the auto sector 
uh, in 2008, and at the time it was a, a loan and they paid back and we made money on it. So the size of the intervention here makes the critique in the, uh, of the Green New Deal uh, uh, very hypocritical. So I think it creates a very different space for public policy uh, if you have a different administration, because the lines of that debate have changed even on the fiscal discipline. Well, if we think about kind of the, the fiscal end of it, which a lot of that would seem to be, as opposed to some of the monetary, that the fiscal stimulus would be in really focused on job creation. Um, you know, I, I would think that it is a lot easier to create jobs kind of looking backward, right? That I, I know how to direct energy to somewhere about, uh, you know, oil and gas jobs or something like that. For, for some of the more emerging technologies, it might be harder to create those jobs, particularly for those who need the, need the jobs most. Um, is that a potential, um, you know, I guess risk here with, with the, you know, coming out of the pandemic and trying to make for a better society? Is it going to be harder to direct some of those fiscal dollars to a, a new world rather than preserve the old world where we can more accurately count, you know, the, the jobs that we've lost? That's a great question. We can spend an entire day actually debating <laughs> around that, that, that issue, um, in part because it gets at this question of uh, particularly of digitalization and automation and um, artificial intelligence. And I think one thing that is important to just think about for a minute, I mean, look at the traditional energy company, the modern energy company, and the trends within those companies and what they're needing to do. And consistently what you're seeing in all of them is moving toward digitalization, artificial intelligence as a way to reduce jobs, to reduce the number of people and you're seeing it right now, even from a COVID-19 perspective of taking people off of platforms, right? And so if you can substitute that with technology, that's been a positive thing. In society more generally, I think that what's happened with automation and digitalization is part of the debate that we're not having. It's in effect, we've got into this period of, of job destruction where the gains in, in, in automation have been so great that we've lost large numbers of jobs and we don't have a clear understanding and idea of where those new jobs are going to come from. And oftentimes that issue becomes so difficult to explain or, or be able to, um, to resolve that what we end up seeing is, well, let's blame it on globalization. Let's blame it on the Chinese person or the Mexican person who's going to take your job with, rather than confronting the issue that our world, the way that we work and our world of work is fundamentally changing. So if we start from that perspective and acknowledge that this world of digitalization is transforming the way that we function and operate, we, we need to put aside for a second something which is real, which is that the nature of jobs in the future are going to change and that we're going to have to find ways to use that productivity in new areas to create new types of jobs that we haven't seen. So if that's the way that we're going, does it not make sense at this point in time to be, to be taking these resources that are being invested in fiscal stimulus and monetary programs to be able to think about what is that process of change that we have to undertake anyway? Because we're in the midst of this, right? And if we need to think about jobs, we need to be thinking about jobs in a different way, not in the traditional way of the past, because so many of those jobs are going to go away. Many of the service sector jobs maybe are going to stay there where there is a direct interaction. But those jobs that can be, that, that can be substituted by automation 
are going to be jobs of the past. And what better time than right now than to be able to ask that question, how can you, how can you facilitate and stimulate that transition? Because how many other opportunities are we going to have where the United States is spending 15% of GDP on creating a fiscal stimulus in its economy? Yeah, well, we... I'll give you the uh, sorry. I want to give you the political answer to that question because we've seen that debate here in the last three months uh, in the House and Senate, and I think we need to take account of the political realities in the United States. Uh, the Trump administration tried to create a stimulus for the oil and gas industry, and it failed. Uh, it's one of the only sector which was not included in the package. And the reason for that is that uh, the, uh, the Democrat uh, in the House said, no, we will not subsidize the oil and gas industry because uh, of the environmental concern that we have. And the, the Republican minority put back on the table the deal that they had done two, two years ago, which is, OK, uh, let's subsidize the oil industry and we will accept uh, subsidies for renewable energy and we'll put back the tax credit on, on, uh, uh, on the table. And the answer is no, that deal doesn't exist anymore. We can't, do, we can't draw these equivalents anymore. So I think the political reality is that if you have a, you know, a Democrats holding or the House or the Senate, and even more if, uh, if they uh, take the White House, the policy is going to be very different. It doesn't mean the end of oil, but it means that that transition we're talking about will have the full, the, the full force of the U.S. Treasury behind it. And that's very different. Well, and if we look, Roger, at, so you, you know, talking about politics, but, but if we think for a second about markets and transitions, you know, again, tied to this 1970s parallel or potentially lack of parallel that, that we're discussing, you know, if we look at the top of the S&P 500 back in the 70s, you saw names like Exxon, Texaco, Amico, Gulf Oil, GE, all of whom could be classified perhaps as traditional uh, energy companies. T today, it's more of these te technology companies, uh, some of which Carlos has mentioned, um, capitalizing off remote work, artificial intelligence, Microsoft, Facebook, Google. Um, you know, as this fiscal uh, play co comes into focus and, and as, you know, the 2020s move on, are we going to see, quote, quote, unquote, traditional energy companies back in the top 10? Uh, will it be more the technology companies that lead energy? Um, you know, I imagine a lot of this is an open question, but how does energy come back from what is it now, 2% of the S&P 500? I, I don't know. I mean, I think it can come back when uh, when we're in a world where you have demand, correct? So I think it reflects also the, the, the strength of the demand. The, the, the oil and gas side is really very weak. So can you create energy uh, um, a giant, uh, uh, if you want, with a very large uh, market cap? You, maybe you can, and this is what we're seeing right now when you look at the portfolios of all the IOCs. Each one of them is trying something different. Right? We're in the phase where these companies have to transition, and each of them is choosing a different path. And you can see it very clearly in their portfolio, correct? What the Europeans are doing between oil, gas, energy, wind, renewables, uh, hydrogen, etc. I mean, the diffusion of the strategies is remarkable. So you can pick very different bets now when you, uh, we're going after 
uh, investing into these companies. But it doesn't mean they're going to be the winner. I mean, what's the market capitalization of Tesla today? It's an energy company. It's not an, uh, a manufacturing company. It's just manufacture batteries and put uh, a small kit on top of it, correct? This is what it's doing. Look at uh, uh, the fate of the day, correct, Nicola? I mean, you guys uh, uh, explained to me what that company was yesterday. Yesterday, what market cap was $25 billion, uh, which is zero revenue, correct? Sorry, bigger than Ford. And it literally produces nothing. And it's an energy company. And that's what it is. It's, it's, a, lease, it's a battery leasing uh, company, if I understand what it is, correct? So you're starting to see value creation, and there's a race about who's going to be that. And this is a global race, correct? I mean, the big question we need to ask ourselves is, is China wedded to oil and gas? And the answer is no. It's wedded to energy. It needs energy. It needs cheap energy. And it's discovering it's going to need green, uh, uh, clean uh, energy. And there is a race going on who's going to control uh, these technologies. So I think the pendulum is swinging. The question is how far and how quick. Roger, that's very interesting what you say, but I'm interested here in how um, perhaps Russia and, um, and OPEC, Russia and Saudi Arabia, are going to um, feed into this um, this this new world, particularly over the next um, uh, the next uh, decade. Yeah. Can, can I just uh, say one thing additionally about China, though, because um, one thing that's important to think about in China is that they've always looked at energy from three different perspectives. One is pollution, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's a matter of survivability. And it, China being an authoritarian state, the one area that consistently has an impact on politics are perceptions of pollution and the pressures that come from the bottom up. And that's pushed partly for the transition to lower carbon um, solutions. It's moved coal-fired power plants out of urban centers, a big factor that's supporting the process of transition. Um, a second issue is energy security. And the dependence that they've had on imports, and particularly of oil, have been a major concern for China. And so one of the issues on looking at renewable energy, connecting that with power systems, is fundamentally related to a security issue for them. Because this is something that can't be controlled by the outside. The, the wind is theirs and the sun is theirs to be able to have. And the technology to build the solar panel is absolutely there. And hence, it, it, it's a way of enhancing their energy security as well. And the third is competitiveness. And in the past, oil and gas were part of the competitiveness story. But the interesting thing right now is that with technological change, there's not so much of a, a it's, it's not so much of a negative aspect on renewable technologies as there were in the past. And so if you look at the country, which is potentially going to have one of the highest increases in demand for energy in the world, that's going to be driving ways in which the rest of the energy system is adapting itself in order to feed that demand. All three of those aspects, you can really see how new technology, renewable energy, are going to be part of a transitional process that's going to be pulled along by China as well. And I think we need to keep that in mind. 
Totally agree. Uh, to come back to your question about Saudi Arabia and Russia, I would not uh, address the Russia part unless Carlos addressed it. He's uh, way more competent than me. He was ambassador to Ukraine, so he knows the region a little bit better than me, who've been only once. <laughs> but on the Saudi Arabia part is important because the Saudi strategy going forward is to transform its economy and, as uh, Carlos said, is uh, use oil to diversify out of oil. To do that, it needs a fairly high price generate the type of surplus to be able to invest both in its economy and in, uh, in, uh, in its private sector and new technology, et cetera, et cetera. So that transition that uh, uh, the Crown Prince is trying to do there, uh, the economic transformation, which has uh, also a social uh, uh, transformation aspect of it, is uh, dependent on being able to have high oil revenue diversify away from oil. The problem is, is who, what type of coalition Saudi Arabia is being able to put together to achieve that outcome in the era of shale? And the answer here is it's very difficult to put together because suddenly in the oil business, you have a market mechanism uh, which brings supply to the fore very quickly if prices rise, correct? So when people say this is the end of shale, uh, it's obviously they haven't understood shale in the first place. It's a big setback for shale, don't get me wrong. But if you have $70 oil, uh, you'll see a lot of investors going to this shale company because they can deliver massive returns and growth at these higher prices that Saudi Arabia would need. The question is, can Saudi Arabia obtain these prices even for a short term? And you know, when would the, uh, the economic aspect of the business shale will benefit from that. And this is where Russia comes in, correct? Saudi Arabia is trying to create the broadest co coalition possible and bringing Russia in was a key uh, objective. I don't think that strategically they agree on what they want to do with the oil business. I don't think uh, Russia wants $70 oil. Uh, Carlos will tell me if I'm right or wrong. But I think that uh, the dynamic is very temporary, uh, which has to do with the uh, uh, with COVID right now, I mean, we saw what happened in March and March at the OPEC meeting when they, uh, uh, when they uh, sought to fight for market share was the true, if you want, uh, revealer of what their uh, strategic position is. Uh, Russia fears the growth in U.S. supply because it gives uh, the U.S. also a lot of political power into uh, the business, correct? And geopolitically. So Russia medium-sized power uh, need oil, but cannot afford uh, shale to be the force that it was. I'll leave it there and I'll let Carlos debate that. So I, I think the, the last thing that Russia wants is to see um, demand destruction in the oil sector because Russia economically is just fundamentally dependent on oil. Yeah. It's had an opportunity after the collapse of the Soviet Union to make a transition. In the early years under Yeltsin, um, it was just simply a matter of chaos and seeking to rebuild, and it didn't happen there. Uh, Putin came in, um, oil prices rose in the following decade, um, and, and the focus was on how to gain a benefit out of those higher oil prices, but structural change didn't occur again. In the 2010s, uh, the opportunity for structural change 
really was bypassed once more. And so one, one more time, Russia finds itself in this situation where it's looked at three potential opportunities to use oil to facilitate that kind of diversification that you now see in the precepts of Vision 2030 in Saudi Arabia, the Abu Dhabi Economic Vision 2030 that was published even a decade earlier than that. Russia hasn't gone through that process yet. Um, and indeed, I think if there's one change that we will probably see increasingly out of Russia is that it will focus more and more to the east. The importance of gas to Europe will be reduced. The, uh, the important pipeline for Russia for the future is are not the gas pipelines that are going to Europe, but it's going to be power of Siberia taking it into China. Um, there are interesting geopolitical dynamics that are going to be at play here between Russia and China and how that relationship develops into the future. But in the end, I think Russia is still going to have a difficult time abusing the massive technological capacity that it has internally that could have given it a capability of being a technological giant in energy transformation. It, it hasn't tapped it yet. And will it do that sometime in the future? And will it do that in some area outside of the nuclear realm? We still haven't seen evidence that that's the trend that they're going to move into. Interesting. Well, maybe, it's, you know, Carlos, maybe this is a, a good way to, to, to kind of wrap up the podcast and, and the idea of, you know, the, the focus on the East that you mentioned, you know, the, the, a lot of the comparisons in the media right now between the 2020s and the 70s are, um, you know, really specific to Nixon and uh, Trump. And, and of course, Nixon did focus on the East and, and you know, very much opened up di diplomatic relationships between the U.S. and China. Um, held the Moscow summit in 1972 to improve some relationships with Russia, whereas the U.S. appears to be now shrinking from the the, the international stage at a time when maybe there's uh, a need for increased international collaboration as the world kind of embraces. So for, uh, I think you said earlier, uh, when you just get when do you start hugging it, the, the energy transition. Um, so, so what do we? I mean, is this a this time it's different uh, for, for the 2020s, uh, or another issue instance of this time it's different, or what will the U.S. Uh, as well, focus on the East and start to see, uh, you know, more globalization on the back of this uh, kind of inward focus that we've witnessed for the past four to five years. Uh, a couple of reflections on that, Hill, and I think it's a, a really critical point. Um, if we look at the pandemic, right, it's affected 188 countries throughout the world with um, millions of cases and hundreds of thousands of deaths. And one of the messages that comes out of this is that it's a global problem. Nobody can escape it. And it, it just underscores this inescapable interconnectedness that we have around the world. And if that's fundamental to the world that we live in and the problems that we face, unless we're willing to look at global solutions, you fail. And if you just look at it as one nation at a time, from a nationalist perspective of what happens within your borders, you also fail. And if you attempt to run diplomacy simply on a country to country basis of tackling each problem individually without the interconnectedness of your allies and friends, you fail as well. And so it, I think one of the challenges that we're gonna face right now is if we're staring this reality right in the face, how do we translate that into a way that we think about the role of the United States in the world more broadly? 
So a big difference with Richard Nixon was that he had Henry Kissinger, right? And Henry Kissinger understood this nature of interconnectedness and, and the interrelationships among countries. And so when you had the oil crisis of the 1970s, what did Kissinger do? Well, he started negotiations with the Arab producers and with Egypt and with Syria and with Israel. And he, and he managed to get to a point where between October of 73 and March of 74, you actually had an easing out of the Arab oil embargo. You had, as you, exactly as you said, the ability to think that mutually assured destruction of nuclear weapons was not a particularly useful way to think about our future and began the process of arms control and arms reduction talks. And, and as you cited, the importance of his engagement with China and opening up a door. And so it doesn't mean that the United States doesn't have differences with many countries throughout the world. And my God, we all know that we're going to still, still have continued differences with China. But one of the things that it does point to is that diplomacy does matter. And the ability to think about who your allies are and who the key players are to get to the solutions that you have to get to in this interconnected world matters as well, because increasingly doing it on your own is harder and harder to do and probably locks you into failure. And so I think one of the critical challenges we're going to face is recognizing the global nature of the challenge, recognizing the importance of diplomacy and reaching out and doing it in a way where we're bringing in and doing it with allies and friends and not just seeking to do it on our, on our own. Yeah, if I can uh, abound here in, uh, <laughs> on your side again, uh, Carlos. I mean, <laughs> Carlos is a diplomat, correct? So he's always going to favor diplomacy. I'm an uh, ultimate uh, internationalist. I own four passports, correct? And a, gr and a green card. So, you know, <laughs> uh, so you're going to get that answer from us. But the reality is that globalization has brought immense wealth to everybody on this planet. Uh, it has uh, moved uh, billions of people out of poverty. So this interconnectedness has created immense economic wealth and inequality. And the question is, how do you uh, you manage these two things uh, going forward, uh, fixing uh, some aspect of it, uh, which were very prevalent, if you want, in, in the Trump presidency, while keeping uh, the, the key benefit uh, of it? I mean, this is what uh, can you change the supply chain in the next three years, really, and uh, keep uh, uh, prices where they are? Can you increase, basically, uh, globally uh, income uh, if you start uh, putting economic borders? Um, th that's a big debate. But uh, so far, I have to say the globalists have won it economically, hands down, over the last 30 years. All right. Well, Rachel, uh, I'm kind of hearing from these guys that, uh, and from all of us, so while past may be prologue, uh, that this time it's different. And, and that the 2020s, uh, we, we need not look for a total repeat of the 1970s. Indeed. <laughs> well, well, thank you all uh, for joining the podcast today. I uh, would love to continue this conversation. Maybe we'll do it again on the 1980s or the 1990s. Uh, day trading. <laughs> so maybe we'll be back. Yeah. The only thing I miss about the 1970s is really my hair. <laughs> <laughs> but Exile on Mainstream really, really was a classic album. So I congratulate you on your choice of that example. <laughs>
Well, thank you. That's a, uh, I've had an open debate of whether some girls is, is as good as some on Main Street. <laughs> they're, they're both from the 70s. And I don't think either one is going to repeat it about the Stones or anybody else uh, in the 2020s. Okay. Well, just remember uh, what the other part of what was it in Gimme Shelter uh, as they were looking, Stones were talking about the future. It's just a shot away. So uh, um, it's right in front of us. All right. Thank you both. And uh, we'll, we'll see you next time. Indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.